I grew up uh, in a church that taught grace a lot. Um, I heard lots of sermons in my formative years on grace. I was always taught that I would never be good enough, that there would never be enough good things that I could do to earn my salvation. I could never go to church enough times or take enough communions or help enough old ladies across the street to get myself into heaven. But the only way I would ever become truly saved and redeemed was through the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, My dad was my preacher growing up. Uh, He still is a preacher. Uh, He's the only preacher I ever knew. And he preached a lot of grace, mostly because when he was growing up, he didn't hear a lot of sermons on grace. Uh, He heard lots of sermons on how what you really needed to do was be good enough. Um, And they, they knew about grace in the church he grew up in. They certainly read verses of scripture that dealt with grace. But what they really taught was that you needed to make sure you did everything exactly right, that you believed all of the exact right things so that at the end of your life, God would congratulate you for being right. Uh, You earn as much of your salvation as possible, but at the end of the day, when you fall just a little bit short, Jesus will make up that difference. And that's what grace is, is it's that filling in the gap between how good you can be and how good you're supposed to be, and grace is Jesus filling in that little bit of a gap. It's the grace gap. Okay, And uh, just so you know, that's a completely false teaching. Uh, Not only that, but it's horrifying, right? You know, I've heard multiple stories and you probably have too, of people who are at the very end of their life and they're on their deathbed saying, I hope I've done enough. Or they're sitting there the last moments of their life and they say, man, I hope I got enough right. Right, and hear me very clearly this morning, if that's the attitude those people have, they didn't really understand grace. And that's not where we have to be. Okay? We can have assurance of our relationship with Jesus because of his grace. If you've ever had a hard time understanding grace, or if you've ever felt like grace sounds awesome, but, you know, preacher, you don't know all the things that I've done. Or if you believe in grace, but there's still that worry that gnaws at the back of your mind, then these next several chapters of Romans are for you. Okay, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about grace, talking about what grace means. Fair enough? All right, here's our review of the story so far, the text of Romans so far. We start with the point Paul makes. He says that apart from God, things get ugly. Okay, we don't have to look very far to see that this is true. When we live our lives apart from the way God planned it, we get in a mess and we get there very quickly. Okay, but the good news is that God made a covenant. Right? With our forefather Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God has said that he would put the world to rights through the descendants of Abraham. But the problem is, of course, that the rescue plan itself needed rescuing. Okay? The Jewish people were supposed to be these covenant bearers to the world, but they themselves couldn't keep the law any better than the Gentiles could. And in fact, they continually left God and left the way that God planned for them to live. But Jesus... And if you remember, um, the biggest exclamation point in the book of Romans is when Paul turns and says, but now a salvation is available to those of us apart from the law. And it's through Jesus. Okay, so then the question we talked about last time was, who gets to be part of this covenant people? Who gets to be part of the people of Jesus? And his answer is that it's the people of faith. 
Just like Abraham had faith, believed that God could actually do what God promised he could do, God also will allow us to be part of this people if we too will just show faith. Okay, now in chapter 5, Paul begins making his argument for two different points. Okay, in the first place, he addresses the question of where is our assurance? Okay, how do we know that we're in this relationship with God? What should this relationship with God look like? Okay, secondly, Paul here starts talking about discipleship. Okay, Paul says, yes, we are saved by grace. We don't earn anything that we've got in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we can just run around living like pagans. Okay, boy, I'm sure glad I've got grace because there's some rotten things I really enjoy doing. Okay, that's, that's the wrong attitude, right? Discipleship answers the question, how do we prevail in our struggle against sin? Hey, how can I be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? How can I be more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today? How can I continue to grow in my faith, continue to grow in holiness? Okay, that's discipleship. All right, and so here's your preview. We're going to spend the next four chapters of the book of Romans talking about these two points, assurance and discipleship. Okay, this begins chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, okay, in other words, keep in mind everything that he's talked about up to this point, all about Abraham and how we are the people of faith. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. All right, the implication from just those two verses is staggering. If we take those verses seriously, that should change the way that we see the entire world. That should set us apart from everybody else who lives on this world who doesn't know grace. What does it mean for us to be a people of grace? Okay, a lot of things we could say about this. Two points I've picked out from these two verses that I think are especially pressing to us. First one is this, and if you're writing notes on your bulletin, write this down. Paul says that we have peace. Okay, we have peace. You remember how we said that apart from God, things get chaotic really quickly? Okay, and you don't have to look very far to see how true this is, right? We have terrorist attacks, kidnappings, murders, rape, Theft or some combination thereof that's on the news every single night when you turn on the news. I think I've told you this before, but I quit watching the news before I go to bed at night because it just makes me depressed, right? Okay, I've also decided that I've got enough drama in my own life, okay, everything from my kids and their busyness and everything that's going on. I don't really need to watch the news and import drama from other people onto my life because I've got enough drama on my own right? Uh, in fact, we have enough drama going on with church members that I'm all drama out by the end of the day, right? I don't need to import drama by watching the news and seeing other people's drama. Okay, and I'm assuming this morning that I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. Right? I'm assuming that any one of you could come up here right now, spend a significant portion of our morning just talking about all the things that are going on in your life right now that threaten your peace, we have medical struggles and marital struggles and financial struggles. 
Okay, we deal with sins that continue to persist in our lives, things that keep us from becoming the people that we know we could be if only we could figure out how to be free from those sins. Okay, there's two things that keep us from peace. Sometimes it's circumstances that are beyond our control, right? Things just happen to us. It's the course of living life keeps us from peace. Also, our own sins keep us from peace. Okay, so sometimes I'm in chaos because I chose to be there, and sometimes just because life happened to me, but either way, we end up in chaos. Now, who here thinks that they could use some more peace? All right, I'm not the only one, just making sure. Peace is the opposite of chaos. And when Paul uses this term, it's much fuller than what we think of as peace. We often think of peace as just the absence of conflict, but when Paul uses this term, it's shalom. It's the peace of God. Okay, the children of Israel always had a rich history talking about the shalom of God, what it means to have peace that can only come when we dwell in the presence of God Almighty, and that peace is a whole lot more than just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of God, and the kind of peace that Paul is talking about can only come to a person who is truly in tune with God. I know this is asking a lot, but several months ago we had a sermon series on Ecclesiastes. Do you at least remember that we talked about You've heard the word Ecclesiastes before at least, right? Okay. Uh, in that sermon series, we talked about all the different ways that we as people chase peace. Okay, and lots of people chase peace in lots of different places. Okay, we think, man, if I could just have enough money in the bank, then I could have peace, right? Well, if I could just have enough pleasure in my life, then I could have peace. Man, if I could just get enough people in the world to think well of me, then I could have peace. Okay? And yet Ecclesiastes, and the point that we had through that sermon series, is if you chase those things, you'll never find peace. Okay, why? Because peace only comes in God. Now, part of why this is so confusing for us is because a lot of people think that when we become Christians, it's going to fix all our problems. Okay, and part of the reason that people think that is because you could turn on the TV right now and see a televangelist telling you that, right? A lot of Christian teachers have misunderstood Scripture and have taught, well, once you truly put all your faith in God, God's going to take care of all your problems. You won't have any more suffering. No more problems. Okay? Now, for those of you who've been Christians for more than 20 minutes, anyone want to dispute that? Okay, suddenly becoming a Christian doesn't just fix all of your problems. Okay, I had someone explain this to me just a couple weeks ago, and I thought this was a really good illustration. I think that this kind of sums it up nicely. Okay, I, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I remember when there used to be these things called phone booths. Anyone remember those pre-cell phones? Okay. Uh, there's these little glass enclosures called phone booths, and you could get in the phone booth, and you could make a phone call on an actual phone. All right, I know that's ancient history, but that used to exist. All right, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're in a phone booth, and in that phone booth is a bee, okay? A buzzing bee, buzzing around flying. Now, how much of your attention is dedicated to that bee? Yeah, all of it. Right? If you're trapped in a phone booth with a bee, you can't think about anything else other than that bee. Right? Now I want you to imagine that you're walking through a field of flowers. Okay? And in that field of flowers, there's bees buzzing around the flowers. How much of your attention is on that bee now? It's totally different, right? 
Okay, here's the thing. When we become Christians, when we truly understand the peace that can only exist in the presence of God, it's like moving out of the phone booth to moving into the field of flowers. The same bee is there, but now our worldview has expanded so much, we're not so focused on it. Now we can have peace in spite of that buzzing bee. Does that make sense? Now we can have peace in spite of the things that we go through, in spite of the problems that we face, because God has granted us a bigger worldview. I see four people nodding at me like that made sense, and a couple people looking at me like I just grew a second head. Okay? The closer we grow to Jesus, the closer we grow to God, the more that we truly understand the grace that God has offered us, the more we will find peace. When we truly come to grips with Jesus as Lord, suddenly all those things that seemed like world-crushing problems aren't nearly as big anymore because we've got our focus changed, we've got our world broadened. When Jesus really becomes Lord, we have peace. Okay? All right, notice again our text, 5 starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace. And notice what he says about our grace. He says, it's grace in which we now stand. Okay, here's my second point this morning. It is we stand in grace. Present tense, right now, you and I have grace. And once upon a time, uh, I used to work for a guy, and you were either in his favor or out of his favor, and it changed quite suddenly, and you never really knew where you stood with the guy. Any of you ever worked for someone like that? Okay, and largely, it depended on your last interaction with him as to whether or not you were in his good graces or whether you were on his bad side. All right, and so every day that I would interact with him, I never really knew where I stood until a few minutes into our interaction, and then I'd figure out either, okay, I'm on his good side today or I'm on his bad side. And it switched quite suddenly. I think too many Christians have that view of their relationship with God. I think many Christians are living in the world saying things like this, saying, okay, you know, I've been doing a pretty good job of going to church recently. Recently, I have basically been a nice guy. I haven't done anything too terrible. And so that means that God really loves me right now. But then sometimes we think, well, I know that recently I haven't been praying as much as I ought to. I've kind of been a jerk to my wife recently. I feel far from God right now. So that means that God doesn't really like me right now. And we're never really sure of where we stand with God. You know, or even worse is the idea that we're saved when we're first baptized. That's when we first become in a relationship with God. Uh, and then we're saved until we sin again. Right, And then when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. Now we're out of grace. And so what do we have to do to get back in grace? Well, fortunately, we can pray for forgiveness. And if I pray for forgiveness, that puts me back in a right relationship with God. And then I'm good until I sin again. And then I'm out of my relationship with God. And I've got to pray for forgiveness again so I can get back in my relationship with God. Anyone ever felt that way before? Okay. Uh, I remember as a kid, as a little kid, feeling like I have to pray for forgiveness every single night because if I forget a night, I might die and then I'll have to go to hell. Okay? We laugh at that, but that's how a lot of people live. Okay? And so with that kind of a mentality, you better hope that if you get into a car accident, you don't say a curse word right before the truck hits you. 
because you don't have time to pray for forgiveness of that sin. And if you don't pray for forgiveness, you're going to hell. That's a terrifying way to live. Okay, as opposed to the relationship that I had with the guy that I used to work for, I think our relationship with God is a whole lot more like the relationship I have with my children. Now, do my children defy my will sometimes? Daily, right? Do they frustrate me to no end? Frequently, yes. Okay, do they ever cease to be my sons? No. Could they ever hurt me so badly that I wouldn't want them as sons anymore? I don't think so. Now, could they effectively tell me that they never wanted to see me again and remove themselves from our relationship? Yes. Okay, but as long as they were willing to ever come back to the dinner table, I guarantee you there would always be a seat there for them. Why? Because they're my kids, right? And I love my kids. All right, verse 2 tells us that because of grace through Jesus, we are in a state of grace. It is not that at our baptism we receive that one shot of grace and now we've got to make sure we repent of every sin we've ever committed since then. Okay, but it's because we are a people who live by faith that God can do what God said he can do that we have access to stand presently in God's grace. Okay, there is no yo-yo relationship with God. There's no, well, now I'm in, now I'm out, now I'm in, now I'm out, and I just hope that I die while I'm in. Okay? There is no, I hope I make it when I die. We should be confident of our salvation because of God's grace. If you are a Christian, as you leave here this morning, you don't have to be worried that something might happen to you because the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die and dwell with God for all of eternity. We should be confident of our salvation. Does that work? All right, notice the rest of the text, starting in verse 3. He says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, again, several things we could say about these verses. I've chosen one for us this morning, and that is this. Our suffering is redemptive, okay? Write that down. Our suffering is redemptive. A couple weeks ago, I was in class all week uh, at Abilene, finishing up another degree. And while I was in class, I was the youngest student there. Uh, you want to guess how old the oldest student there was? Older than 70, 80, okay? There was a brother in the class, 80 years old, finishing a degree, okay? And we were talking to him wondering, why are you here at this stage in your life? Okay, all the rest of us are there in our 30s and 40s, and we're asking this guy, why are you here doing this? Okay, it turns out that my friend Floyd, uh, his life has not gone as he planned it. Earlier in his life, his wife left him quite suddenly, he had to leave the ministry when that happened. Uh, spent several years wandering around doing various things. Now he is intent on starting a Bible college in Swaziland, Africa. And he goes over there regularly and works with, 
with the people in those tribes, teaching them Scripture. And he wants to get that school accredited with the state. And the only way to do that is if somebody is there with a doctorate that can accredit it. So he told us in class, he goes, my one hope for the rest of my life is that I can finish this degree and get that school accredited before I die. Okay, his life has not gone the way he planned it. There's been lots of suffering along the way. He told a lot of his story and there's a lot of pieces to it, as you can imagine in the life of an 80-year-old man. Okay, did God cause the suffering in his life? I'll answer that for you. No, okay? God doesn't cause the sufferings that we go through in our lives. Has God used the suffering in his life to bring about great glory to his name and spread the gospel on the other side of the world? Absolutely. Here's what God does. God uses our sufferings for his glory. God uses our sufferings to spread His kingdom. God also uses our sufferings to help us to grow. Okay, look back at your own life and ask yourself, when were the times that I've grown the most in my faith? And I can bet you that the times you grew the most in your faith were in periods where things weren't going the way you planned them. That when you grew the most in your faith was when times were tough and you were forced to rely upon God and His grace to get you through what you were going through. Is that fair? Paul teaches us that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Okay, suffering reminds us of what's most important. Suffering focuses us like nothing else can. Hey, I know I've told you this before, but I've spent a lot of time in ICUs at children's hospitals. And you notice in an ICU in a children's hospital that none of the parents are arguing about the remote for the TV. None of the parents are worried about who's winning the big game that weekend. None of the parents are worried about who's going to be elected the next president of America. None of those parents are worried about whose turn it is to do the chores when they get home. Okay, why? Because they're focused on something that's more important. Okay? When we go through suffering, it teaches us how to think about the things that actually matter. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Our suffering is redemptive. Paul teaches us our suffering is the first steps on discipleship. You want to be more like Jesus? Then learn how to reflect on your suffering in godly ways. Does that make sense? Again, we will continue to talk about this. Where is our assurance as followers of Jesus? What does this life of discipleship look like? Okay, the next several chapters of Romans, Paul will get into this in greater detail, teach us much more about what it means to truly follow our Lord Jesus Christ.